bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Bitch, the Chicago. Hey everyone, what is up? It is me, Ewan, and welcome to a new episode of the We Love Dad Movies podcast. The Summer Vibe season is taking a hot, humid, sweaty detour this week as we're going to dive into US Marshals, which may, may, just maybe, be the ultimate dad movie in terms of dad movie vibes. Gotta bear with us as we go into this. Joining me to talk about the movie this week is Mr. Scott Wiley of the Action Addicts Podcast. How are you doing, Scott? Hi there, Hewan. I'm doing pretty well. Yourself? Yeah, no, I'm doing pretty. I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm just, you know, I'm on holiday at the minute, so kind of relaxing. Which obviously, you know, we won't get into the whole unpleasantness of me forgetting that we were recording yesterday, and then you know, kind of just and then also I was thinking that we were recording the previous week, and you know, it's just been a it's been a big chicken costume of the comedy trying to get this one done (laughs) hey we're here now that's what matters oh so scott before i go in and ask the uh the hallowed dad movie question do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone i imagine there's probably a lot of crossover in terms of listeners but um it's always a good opportunity to do a bit the old the old plugin and letting everyone know what you're about sure uh, for those that are unfamiliar with me, as Ewan said, my name is Scott. I am the host of the Action Addicts podcast, which, if you can't tell from the name, is a podcast dedicated to talking about action movies. We try and talk about everything from multiple decades, different countries. It's not just muscle- muscular men and big guns. We talk about everything and anything, and I try and keep it very varied. We have a different guest host every week, and... It's been going since the beginning of 2022, and it's been doing pretty well for itself. And we're actually about to launch into a season of talking about ninja movies. So if you like ninja movies, now is a great time to come check us out if you haven't before. You know what? Ninja movies are a big blind spot for me. Well, it's funny you say that, because whilst they're not a blind spot for me, a lot of what Americans would consider the classics are, because they're American classics, they're not necessarily are classics and i always find that super interesting like the amount of people because i put out a tweet that went stupidly viral for my show anyway and uh the amount of people that were recommending me the american ninja movies and i'd never seen them and i watched the first one and i was just like you know when you finally get around to watching something and then you're almost disappointed in yourself because you've put it off for so long you finally watch it and you're like oh i'd love this if i'd watched this when i was a kid or a teenager <laughs> this sounds like the movie equivalent of trying five guys for the first time everyone's hyping up five guys here and then you go and it's just like this is just this is just a burger <laughs> <Being Yeah. controversial. laughs> it might be a controversial burger take there <laughs> um but yeah, no, I mean, Ninja Vibe sounds cool. Again, I, I've released in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That is the extent of my ninja knowledge. But anyway, Scott. Oh, wow, okay. It is lovely to have you on. Uh, for those who don't know, me and Scott did an episode for his podcast uh, on the John, on the first John Wick um, before John Wick Chapter 4 came out, which is interesting because yes. my entire John Wick opinions kind of... Well, not my entire John Wick opinions. My John Wick opinions changed slightly after we recorded that, and I was like... I think John Wick Chapter 2 is the best now. Um, but, <laughs> but, and also I was in another job when we did that. So it's, you know, we're going to have to do, that's a good excuse to do another. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, 
we could do something completely different or you could come back and try and tell me why John Wick Chapter 2 is now your favourite. It'd be mm. interesting to hear you argue with yourself after you, what your comments <laughs> on the first film. <laughs> I will create a puppet version of myself and just yell at him. Be like, you fool. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you... When, when we were discussing having you on the show, I feel like it was... You, you were laser-guided onto US Marshals, which... I find so exciting because obviously anyone who's familiar with the show will know that I love The Fugitive. I love Tommy Lee Jones. Um, and U.S. Marshals as a movie, it, it, the thought hadn't really occurred to me when you suggested it. Obviously, we were going to do this one eventually on the podcast. Um, it is kind of weirdly, like, scientifically crafted to be maybe the ultimate dad movie in the sense that it's a completely unnecessary sequel. Um, <laughs> it's basically an action movie. The sequel itself retreads so much of the, of the first movie, but just ramps up the action vibes. Um, and it's all about Tommy Lee Jones being right for the entire movie. Um, except for maybe <laughs> like one or two scenes. But I'm so glad you chose it because I got to revisit it last week for the podcast. Um as a movie that I had kind of just thought like, oh, this is fun. I actually had a great time with it. I thought it was even better than I remembered. Obviously nowhere, in my view, nowhere near as close to The Fugitive, um, which is a lot better in so many different ways. However, um, this thing is so watchable and I think I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I can't remember how we ended up talking about u.s marshals i've got a funny feeling that what happened is i started uh listening to your show and you'd already you'd already had a few episodes because i came to you not late as such but you'd already done a few before i realized you were doing a podcast which is ironic because i've actually been following you on twitter longer than you've <laughs> had the podcast but you know we all know that uh, seeing what you want to see on Twitter is uh, very much a gamble and engagement is an absolute nightmare. So it doesn't surprise me that I completely missed that you started this venture. <laughs> the algorithm but... has not been kind to me at all. <laughs> no, the, the algorithm is a pain in the ass. and It's only getting worse. But anyway, um, I think in, a, in, a, in one of the early episodes that I listened to from you, I think you were talking about you were going to do The Fugitive in the future. And either you or whoever it was you were co-hosting with i don't remember who it was i think one of you said something along the effect of oh well are you gonna do the 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 rubbish sequel u.s marshals and the second you said that i'm like hey do you want you want i'll come on if you want and talk about u.s marshals (laughs) (laughs) uh I had a completely different experience to most people with this film because I watched U.S. Marshals having never seen The Fugitive. Oh, I love stories like this. This is the shit I live for. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't know that The Fugitive even existed when I first watched <laughs> U.S. Marshals. had no clue that this was a sequel. So, of course, everybody who used to say, you know, oh, The Fugitive is better than U.S. Marshals, and I'm like, what are you guys on about? The Fugitive is a Harrison Ford film. <laughs> It's got nothing, because <laughs> bear in mind that, you know, when the, the Fugitive was made, like a lot of the early releases would have just been, it's a Harrison Ford film. Had no clue Tommy Lee Jones was even in the damn thing, because I'd never seen it. You won an Oscar. I know. <laughs> right, just to put this into perspective, the Blu-ray I've got is in a Harrison Ford collection and it doesn't have Tommy Lee Jones on it, on the cover anywhere, <laughs> even though he won an Oscar. 
in in the fugitives' defence, Tommy Lee Jones is not the fugitive. Harrison Ford is the fugitive. So to have Tommy Lee Jones on the cover would be false advertising. <laughs> well, you could you could you can have both. But anyway, <laughs> my my point is is that um, you actually kind of made some of my points for me, which is that I have seen the fugitive since, obviously, and I do really enjoy that film. But I still think that some of the hate for U.S. Marshals is unnecessary, and it basically stems from the fact that it's not the fugitive. And I get that, but I also think that a lot of its problems can be solved if you don't think of it as a sequel to The Fugitive, which I don't anyway, because you're following a different main character. Like you said, Tommy Lee Jones is now the main character, and one of the big things that, like, for example, my dad is a big U.S. Marshals fan, and it's probably the reason why I watched it before The Fugitive, Um, his which is actually ironic given that, you know, it's a dad movie podcast and it's my dad that showed me this film. <laughs> it's all of the stars are aligning. But one of the points that he would often make, and especially rewatching the film this week to, you know, be prepared for this show, I still agree with him, is that one of his problems, and I, I'm going to have to explain this slightly, so bear with me, audience. The difference between The Fugitive and U.S. Marshals is... Harrison Ford, especially at the time that The Fugitive was made, doesn't play bad guys. He, he's never somebody that was going to actually be guilty of what he was accused of. And so the whole idea that he might actually be guilty just doesn't even come into play. And now in fairness, The Fugitive script doesn't even pretend like he might be guilty. Obviously, they you know, the audience knows from the word go that he's innocent. But Wesley Snipes, who is this film's version of The Fugitive does not have that problem wesley snipes is quite well known for playing excellent heroes but he's also played quite a few decent villains and the film leans into the idea for quite a long time that is he guilty is he innocent in the very beginning they very much lean into the idea that there's more to him and that he probably is guilty and the film takes a very long time finally landing on which side you should be on Obviously, people can make up their own minds and probably decided he was innocent before the film spelled it out for them. But the fact that it was played by somebody that actually would play villains and can play them very well. And I know you don't like Demolition Man, but the rest of the world does. And <laughs> what? I'm, I'm catching strays here. Actually, that's not even that's a laser guided missile. Ah, <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, but my point is, is that the fact that they cast people that were more more going more able to be believable same with robert downey jr you know he comes in as this straight-laced agent but he spoiler alert winds up being the actual villain and i liked the sort of predictability that you could have gotten from an average script with snipes just being the bad guy again and robert downey jr being the straight-laced white guy that comes in and saves the day and helps tommy lee jones and they try to flip it on their head combine that with the fact that there is a lot more action in this film, which isn't a, a necessary thing to be more enjoyable. I, like I said, I love The Fugitive too, but the stunt work and the ridiculous disaster sequences in The Fugitive, I think are just as well matched in U.S. Marshals. The plane crash scene in particular is a fantastic demonstration of practical effects, and I found myself constantly just being blown away at the sight of actually seeing, oh yeah, there's no CGI in this film. It looks fantastic <laughs> as a result. Yeah, it is. It surprised me going back to it, like how good it looks. Uh, I don't think it's as inventive uh, in terms of how it's cut or shot in certain sequences, um, but it definitely has its own 
style going for it. Yeah, it's. I'm, I'm glad that you are here to really sing this film's praises because it's a film that I like and I think is one of those that if it comes on in the evening on like a Friday night um, and you don't want to... One of those great wind down for the weekend movies where it's like, oh, hell yeah, US Marshals. I'm going to watch two hours of Tommy Lee Jones yelling at people and shooting things. Um, and <laughs> I love that. And I also think it's a great declaration. One of the weirdest things that I saw when I was looking at reviews for this on Letterboxd, which I know is a pathway to madness, but, you know, I, I go into the gutter so that people don't have to, um, is that loads of people were saying, oh, who looked at The Fugitive and, and the supporting cast and thought they needed a sequel? And I've always felt like one of the greatest things about The Fugitive is how effortlessly charismatic and endearing and how much shared history is communicated between Gerard and his marshals. Like, you've got Joey Pants, who is a, is Cosmo Renfro, which I think I mentioned in the Fugitive podcast, is, like, one of the all-time great movie names. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and, you, you know, you've got the likes of Newman, too. And they're all... That dynamic is great. So, in my head, I don't think a sequel to The Fugitive is as wild an idea as some people may may think. The one thing that I think lets the movie down um, is it. Even though I really like, I, I agree with you that the whole fugitive angle here of like it maybe entertains the idea that he could be guilty at the beginning. I think that is interesting. Um, is that structurally, uh, at least until we get to the final act and we have the whole stuff with RDJ's character and you know the, the subterfuge and, and the cover up, um, it's very, very similar to the fugitive. Like, it, it couldn't be more of a sequel if it if it tried. You know, you get the big uh, prison transportation crash bit, you know, um, the, the way that they, they go for hunting for him and stuff. Like, it's very similar. So I think what I get from US Marshals is like, oh, this is like a really fun time. But I think the, the level of invention there is probably, or the lack of invention, rather, in certain in certain moments is probably what brings it down. I don't know if you would agree or not, though. I mean, it doesn't bring it down for me, but that's I think that's more to do with an acknowledgement of when the film was made, because I almost feel like if you want to make a sequel at this point in time in Hollywood, then you have to follow a formula. And if you're making a sequel to a super successful movie, well, we need the same elements from the first film then. You know, producers don't like risk and they don't like change. You know, there's a reason why we can greenlight 20 Fast and Furious movies, but heaven forbid we make a, a sequel to a film like Man from Uncle or Man of Steel. It's just they're allergic to anything that might actually be a risk. And I think that someone had some good ideas to make a spin off rather than a sequel that involved the Marshalls. And I imagine the people that actually had the money went, well, that's fine, you can do that. But, um, you know, we want all the stuff that people really liked in the first film. Like, we'll get our Oscar winner. We want big destruction sequences. We want a format that's still them hunting, you know, a fugitive just in case people couldn't figure out what film this was related to. We'll make sure that Tommy Lee Jones says fugitive at least once in the film. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. I totally agree. Um, I suppose we should give a little brief bit of context here for people who somehow aren't familiar with U.S. Marshals. It was a sequel that came out in 1998. So that's five years after The Fugitive. Directed by Stuart Baird as opposed to um, Andrew Davis, who directed the original movie. 
Um, Tolly Jones is back as uh, Senior Deputy U.S. Marshal Samuel Gerard, along with the rest of his boys. Um, Wesley Snipes is in this as the main fugitive character, a guy called Mark Sheridan, who at the beginning of the movie is implicated in the murder of... Um, is it is is it State Department agents or is it like CIA agents? It's uh, D. It's DSS. DSS. Give, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which took me forever to try and remember what that stands for, and it was really getting on my nerves because so they just assume that everybody in the world understands every single different federal <laughs> agent that Americans have. You got the CIA, those, the FBI, the, the yeah. DSS, the the oh, NSA, uh, HS. You got NCIS, CSI. Yeah. <laughs> There's and a then, lot. So it's the dip- it's the diplomatic security service for those that are also like, what on earth is the DSS? Yeah. So he's implicated in the murder of a few of those agents. Um, goes on the run. Um, and there's basically a kind of back and forth. You know, like like Scott says at the beginning of the film, it's not made immediately clear whether or not he is indeed guilty or innocent of the crimes. And along for the ride with Sam Gerard's Marshal Service is um, Robert Downey Jr.'s um, special agent, John Royce, um, who kind of comes in as like a, you know, outside like a DSS chaperone. Um, and immediately, obviously, the US Marshals do not take Carlin to him. Gerard himself is currently under scrutiny for alleged um, <laughs> force, overuse of force in, the, in, in certain previous arrests. Um, and yeah, there's basically a whole thing of like him working himself relentlessly while tracking down, um, Sheridan, um, all the while trying to basically figure out what, um, what exactly the DSS's true intent here is and kind of the conspiracy that slowly unravels involving, you know, uh, state secrets and Chinese spies and all this. So it's definitely a departure from the fugitive um, in the sense that the original is very much a case of like murdered man wrongfully accused and is caught up in a pharmaceutical conspiracy. We're into international espionage and scandal here now. Um, it kind of feels like it's like obviously we already had Hunt Fred October when the fugitive came out, but this feels weirdly in step with the um, Philip Noyce Jack Ryan movies at times, both in terms yep. of like tone, but also you know the actual. Uh, the actual premise behind the film. Yeah, no, I, I actually made a note along those lines that this feels closer to a Jack Ryan movie than it does anything to do with The Fugitive. And especially when you rewatch it, when you know the twists that are coming, I really enjoyed the performances between Snipes and Downey because there is so much happening in those earlier scenes that don't mean anything or don't stand out to you until you know what's going to happen at the end of the film when it's revealed, you know, who the real bad guy is, who the real good guy is. And there's so many little subtle things that I think is easy to miss. Like, there's a scene where they're looking for Snipes' character and they're in swamps and they're on boats. Now, all the marshals are looking on the ground. If you actually look at Downey's character, he's looking in the trees, which is where Snipes actually is, because he's the only one that actually understands who they're hunting he knows full well that they're hunting someone that's trained as a, you know, special forces agent, ex-CIA agent. So he's always one step ahead of them, but he never plays it like he is. He always downplays what he's capable of and obviously what uh, Snipes' character is capable of. And it, it's it's real easy to miss, but there's so many times where he subtly 
knows what he's looking for and doesn't let it on to everybody else. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Because, it, again, it's blink and you'll miss it stuff like that that's peppered all throughout the film of these hints that the storyline that you're being sold is not what's actually happening. And like you said, the fact that it's played as did Snipes kill these people? Well, fun fact. Yeah, he did. He is guilty of what he's charged of. The thing that makes it different is when they start investigating it, which is something that they never wanted to do in the original Fugitive. There's that great line where he flat out tells Harrison Ford, I don't care if you killed your wife. And uh, in this film, he immediately starts to piece together that something's not right, and that winds him up. And that makes him look deeper. And there's so many things that don't add up once they start looking into it. And I think your enjoyment of this film will come down to the fact of, do you enjoy the conspiracy element, the mystery element, or do you just want a more straightforward story of you know, escape and evade and the pursuing forces, which I think The Fugitive offers. I think it comes down to what do you want from the story? Mm. So that's such a good observation with RDJ because I didn't notice that at all, but that's really, really clever. And I'm curious to go back and revisit this and actually have my eye out for stuff like that. I don't know if anything else caught your eye in that area or is it just like the tree stuff? Uh, When they meet for the first time, obviously you don't know that they know each other and when they if you, again if you just take everything they say at face value there's nothing out of the ordinary but snipes and downey actually talk as two people that know each other and they flat out say you know well what what are we going to do now that we're here and he's like well now it's time for us to have a dance and of course gerard then shows up and they both go dead quiet because mm. even though they don't know who they can trust they know that they're he's not dss and they immediately put it down and whenever Downey shoots he's always trying to kill him and again it's not something you realize until later on when he becomes very obvious he's trying to kill him but there's multiple times where he just fires wildly and you're like that was a bit weird but you kind of let it go but when you put it all together it's like actually he you know he's trying to kill him from the word go and really wanted to just put a bullet in him in that forest sequence and that would have been you know job done no one would have ever found out or looked any deeper that's really clever um can we also before we get too far in can we talk about the chicken scene chicken costume scene (laughs) yes because that that shot of tom lee jones in a chicken costume staring intently at that building is one of the most quietly menacing well it's not even quiet it's one of the most menacing (laughs) shots in action movie history menacingly hilarious i should say and then because you just get this chicken and then the chicken drops his uh like ticket promotion thing and then pulls out a Glock and just cocks it and starts walking menacingly towards the house and he's flanked by the US Marshals. I think that might be one of the greatest movie scenes of all time. It's it's beautiful. I, I love the fact as well that they got it is Tommy Lee in the costume. Like, why is he the one in the chicken suit? Surely he'd give you'd you'd think that it would be one of the like younger marshals <laughs> that would have to put up with that. But no, he does it himself. And then I love the fact that he has that entire raid on the house and he's everyone else is in suits and shirts, and then you've got Tommy Lee just in this giant chicken suit, kicking indoors and <laughs> and the other thing that made me laugh in that sequence is they go in to get those two guys. But Tommy Lee ends up only playing with the two girls, and mm. I and yes, that I'm I'm calling them girls, and the, everybody else has to fight these big strong men that can barely be contained by handcuffs, and he ends up just grappling the two very young women. Yeah, 
I mean, he's in a chicken suit. What do you expect him to do? Go toe to toe with with the Hulk? <laughs> <laughs> and I, what I like about Gerard and what I find so appealing about his character um, is that I get the sense that he he lives for the the theater. He's kind of got like um. I'm trying to think of a great way of, like, conveying this, because I feel like it's not a case of, like, I think he does enjoy his job. I think he does enjoy being that guy. He enjoys the dress-up aspect, and he enjoys being right and having a team of competent people that he can marshal, A, to his uh, to, to his desired goals. Um, and he's also funny. Like, I like I like that Samuel Gerard has got that kind of, like, twinkle-eyed edge to him. But what I like about... Jones's portrayal in U.S. Marshals is that obviously his performance in The Fugitive, he comes across as like an emotionally guarded man. Like even at the end when he has their face to face with with Kimball, um, and he has that moment of vulnerability where he's still joking around essentially with where Kimball's in the car and they're having a laugh. You know, coming through the other end of the experience, you know, alive and as friends, they crack the case, whatever. Here, they dive into that darker aspect and how much he cares for his, you know, his his team. Um, and I found myself completely shocked at how emotionally gut-punching the, the loss in this movie is when, when Newman dies. Because yeah. Newman... It's so it's so interesting how that kind of that relationship develops in the course of the fugitive, where he is, you know, evidently the young the young newbie on the group. He's kind of not really aware of like the job responsibilities. You know, at the beginning of the film, he's being asked to like get donuts for Gerard and stuff like that. Um, and then here, he's kind of in, in more of in his in his element. You know, he's vindicated for shooting that guy at the beginning, whether or not you think it's the right thing to do. You know, he basically gets the praise for it. Um, he gets a lot more to do on his own here. And he dies, and it's still like... Jones really sells it. Probably, potentially more than you would say that he needs to for a movie of this kind of stature. Um, but I think that the death of Newman is, like, really good. It, it, I think it could be easily criticised as, oh no, not Newman... But I'm actually more like, oh no, Newman! I like Newman! Um, and the bit where they lose him in the ambulance is uh, it's heartbreaking. It is. It is. I mean, it's so funny because Newman gets killed and dies at the exact same age I now am. And it, it really kind of got to me. And obviously, I don't know if you know this, but for audiences who don't know me, they definitely won't know this, but I... I used to work in um, a major hospital. I've worked in two of them, and thankfully, I, I've never been. I never went into the the big emergency rooms, but I have unfortunately zipped up body bags and done a lot of that side of things. And hearing the the callousness in the paramedic's voice when they get out of the ambulance, and he's just like, "Oh, nah, this guy's already gone." You know, I I've, I've raged on the inside because in my head, I'm like, "You'd never do that." Like that, I want to smack you upside of the head for saying that when there's someone who's quite clearly traumatized, upset, and very close to this person stood right next to you. Like you'd never do that. And then I thought about it. Yeah, you would. And it's it's really aggravating. But yeah, I know I know people like that. You just get so desensitized to it. And the thing is, I'm I'll bet money that Gerard has been that person because when it's not 
someone that you're emotionally attached to, it's real easy to just write it off as, oh, well, we lost another one. What's for lunch? And I think that that scene works so well for me because you just said in the first film, Gerard is that emotionally detached guy. And I think that the reason why he goes so far for selling it is because I don't think Gerard really deals with that very often. And I think that might have been the first time that he properly realized what it meant to actually, you know, lose someone in the line of duty because the way everybody talks about it and the the great acting that comes next between him and Cosmo especially oh, so good it's quite clearly a first time event it's not like he's an action hero that's lost dozens of people in the past and he always makes people pay it's like the way they talk about it is you know this is all uncharted territory you know and i, I really like that aspect of it yeah no i totally agree that's such a good point um it i i love joe pantaliano's dynamic with Gerard with uh with Tommy Lee Jones in this film like Cosmo was the Joker and like no I don't mean like the clown prince of crime I mean he was the jokey one in like the fugitive and he gets to continue more of that streak here you know whether it's him buying the terrible clothes for Gerard <laughs> uh while he's in the tracksuit oh, yeah. I love how they just keep putting Tommy Lee Jones in like stupid outfits in these films it's honestly it's like my favorite thing Especially when he's got the barbecue t-shirt on. I think that's just a great look overall. Because even though he looks silly, you wouldn't cross Gerard in a second. Um, no. But I, I love... I just love Cosmo. I think it's another testament to, you know, Joe Pantaleano's stature. is like, oh, one of the big, preeminent that guy actors. He's a great character actor. Um, and I feel like whatever he's in, he always he always gives full committal. Um, and a full commitment, rather. And it's... Uh, yeah, I, I love I love the the it's one of the things that I'm I'm continuously impressed by with both this and the fugitive is how well both films communicate that shared history that shared off screen history that all these characters have together. They don't necessarily need to have loads of screen time to impart a layer of emotional resonance because they're all so believable and realized. Even in brief moments, you fully get every facet of what these characters are and what they mean to each other, which. Again, you know, talking to you, getting an even better appreciation for this film, I feel like when the dark moment happens with Newman, like you said, that conversation between Cosmo and Gerard, you get so much from both of them there. You know, in terms of Cosmo having been what you can gather from the the two movies, he's been Gerard's number two, you know, for a while. You get very much get that vibe. Um, but also kind of like the, the less... Um, the less kind of rigorous of the pair. And here he's really leading into that idea of like, what are we doing, man? Like you need to like take a breather and just, and, and do whatever. But Gerard is very much in warpath mode. And I love seeing that angle. It's, it's, there's so much going on here and I really appreciate it. And again, the more I talk to you, the more I'm like, yeah, US Marshals hasn't really gotten the flowers it deserves yet. Yeah. That, that scene is amazing because a, it's one of the few moments where, you know, Cosmo is deadly serious. And like you say, the way in which they, you know, Joe Pantoliano gets to demonstrate what he's actually capable of when he's not just delivering a joke every five minutes. But the dialogue in particular, I absolutely love his point. You know, he gets really mad at Sam and basically turns around and says, yeah, we all know what you're what you're going to do. Like, don't think that we're stupid. But if you do this... He pretty much implies but doesn't say that we won't be here when you get back. But also, you know, you're doing this for you. 
This isn't about Newman. This isn't even about us anymore. This is all about you and the fact that you want to make yourself feel better because you've lost and you hate losing. You know, the great Sam Gerard, you always have to win. And the fact that uh, Gerard just basically says, yeah, I do and I will. And the fact that uh, that then, you know, accidentally primes him to be the perfect partner for Robert Downey Jr.'s Royce because now they both want to kill Sheridan and, you know, they can kind of mask off, basically. It's like they're both going there to shoot to kill. And what really sells that for me is, although Sheridan says he wants to kill him, he is still a good person underneath all his grumpy and grouchiness and his, you know, his up his rage and his sadness. He doesn't actually want to do it. Whereas, even though technically there was no need to, Royce still fires off an entire clip into sheridan and could have easily hit gerard if he wasn't such a bad shot apparently (laughs) but the the difference in looks on their faces sells it for me that look on gerard's face of absolute like fear and terror at the realization that he might have actually killed someone in cold blood and then you've got royce who actually just genuinely tried to do it and he looks like he couldn't care less he's angry and he's angry at the fact that Sheridan's still alive not that he just you know fired off an entire round at his so-called friend and the guy they're supposed to arrest and that realization on Gerard's face sells the previous scenes for me so well because you get that moment of going I nearly became that that guy and I don't want to this is so good. I'm getting more and more out of this just from listening to you talk about it because I haven't even thought about that, you know, looking up and seeing that dark reflection of what you could be. That's so, so good. Um, and obviously after that, we get the whole, you know, the the the, the revelation. Uh, well, not the revelation because obviously we had the bit before where, um, you know, he he's killed Newman. But the yeah. back and forth there where you're kind of getting that, that bit of bonding going on. Or at least what what um, RDJ's character thinks is bonding. And it's really Gerard kind of, you know, planting the seeds of his own downfall. Um, it's so well done. I love all this because it's like it, in some remote level of me, in my brain, I'm like, ah, oh, man, they do they do get along. But obviously, you know that... that um, that that Royce is such a bastard. <laughs> the dialogue is so like, oh, so pally, it's so good. Um, I did want to actually ask you, in regards to <laughs> Royce's uh, actual scheme um, to basically frame Sheridan for the murder of Newman, does it make as less sense to you as it does to me? Because the whole just, I'm going to switch my very recognisable gun and try and say that it was Sheridan's gun and then go back to using a Glock without telling anyone and only filing off the, sh- the, the serial number that to me is the dumbest way to try and <laughs> maintain innocence I think I've seen because surely it would have made more sense just to say that oh no Sheridan wrestled my gun from me for a brief moment and killed Newman rather than what he eventually does which completely gives him away I don't know if I'm being a an asshole here nitpicking things but it's always it always stands out to me as like that really needed to be thought out better (laughs) no i i I completely agree with you that that's always been the one hang-up point i've had that end sequence where he hands gerard his gun 
and Gerard recognizes it because they make such a big deal out of it at the beginning of him uh you know having this ridiculous gun and he tells him to get a glock and he does what i'm trying to remember i might be wrong so i apologize if there's someone in the audience that knows this film like the back of their hand but i'm pretty sure that when he has the when he shoots newman i think he does have the glock on him uh so i think that that it lent more credence to the idea that it is just a coincidence that the other gun is the same make as the one he had with the serial number obviously filed off. But I still find it weird that he would deliberately sort of go out of his way to give Gerard the gun and be like, Hey, look, we found this gun on Sheridan. And obviously it's going to match the, the ballistics to, to the bullet that shot Newman. Cause why would it? Yeah. And you know, but what I like is, even though I get sort of... It's a bit difficult for me to believe that Gerard puts it all together from that one moment, and more importantly, that Royce wouldn't think, oh, maybe he'll remember this. But what I do like is what seems like a, a throwaway momentary, or oh, we need to build some tension and set some stakes at the beginning, which is where he gets shot by that very gun. Uh, that actually turns out to be very important at the end, because now they have... Uh, bullet casing that they can match to said gun to prove that it isn't just a random one it is in fact royce's gun so again there's some clever stuff happening in the script where they set stuff up right at the beginning that pays off dividends at the end i just think that like you say i think royce maybe panicked maybe did something that wasn't really going to stand up but i think his whole plan was that once all of the evidence is basically in lockup he can just fiddle with it yeah and you know no one's ever going to look at it in detail because that's what he's been doing well potentially for years we don't know we don't know how long he's been in operation as a corrupt agent because i wondered the same thing you know when newman walks in on him and he's beaten snipes he's got him in a position to execute him and his guns on the back of his head and i for my first thought was well any or you know person that does autopsies um and anyone that does ballistics is going to know straight away that he was killed execution style um so surely you'd have to kind of explain that but then i thought about it more and i think i guess his plan was to make sure that the body went to somebody that would just basically you know say whatever they he's told to say basically yeah yeah i mean it is uh just to confirm it is definitely his nickel plated gun that he uses to kill newman with so it is the gun um that he presents to gerard at the end but yeah it's um you could maybe argue that it's a case of him just underestimating Gerard, which I think is silly because I think over the course of the movie he he gets a bit of a reverence for Gerard, even though he's trying to play him for a fool the entire time. I think he knows that not to cross the dog because the dog always wins. Um, so yeah, yeah, just that is I hate getting into that kind of facet of the discussion because for me it's always just like oh I'm just you know nitpicking, but I guess in this case it is foundational enough to be like well that doesn't really line up with the meticulous nature of, of the conspiracy and how they fought to maintain it. It just comes across as a bit sloppy. Um, not well, just, I, not, I think, yeah, go on. I think, th- no, no, it's, I agree with you, but I think there is a, there is a line of dialogue that he says, you know, why did you shoot Newman? And he basically says, you know, well, I didn't want to, but he walked in on me, so I had to improvise. And I think that's what it boils down to is it wasn't, it wasn't part of the plan. So he, he only had a limited amount of time to try and come up with something believable and it was a case of you know he he disappears in that scene if you actually watch after the paramedics come in the police come in gerard goes after sheridan and 
Royce just disappears. He ain't he ain't in the room anymore. He's there like pretending to be upset about it. But then once they go into the ambulance, it's like Royce is just standing there, but he just very quietly just disappears. So he had all the time in the world to just basically be like, oh, you know, Sheridan got a shot off and they're not going to be able to match the bullet because he has the gun. So it's one of those things where there's a lot of stages that he can't do a lot about now, but all he needs to do is kill Sheridan and there's nobody that's ever going to argue the point in his mind so he can clean up all the evidence after the fact he can make things disappear uh, you know from evidence rooms he can pay people off to make sure that you know things won't match or whatever he needs to do i think his his whole goal is as long as sheridan dies i can go back and fix everything else afterwards doesn't matter for now that's tomorrow's problem you know yeah totally that that, that make that's fair i think um and i love i have to say i do really like that that confrontation at the end where, you know, he's asking why you kill Newman and stuff. And I, I just, I think like, I've, I've talked about on this podcast a bunch of times, how Tom Lee Jones is one of my favorite actors ever. And it really annoys me when people are like, oh, he just plays himself all the time. It's like, well, no, he has a unique screen presence. Like, don't confuse the two things. Cause Gerard is different to a lot of his other characters. Gerard is excitable. You know, he's got like a, an exuberance to him. And here again, like we mentioned earlier on, that kind of this is where we get to see Gerard at his most emotionally crumpled. Um, I love that kind of like even when he is in this vulnerable state, he is still capable of making rational choices. At least at the you know once he is presented with that dark reflection of himself, um, and obviously the great bit where uh, Sheridan is like you know he's got a gun, and then Gerard gets him. Um, that's a great ending. I like that ending a lot, especially with Sheridan getting See, his happy ending as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, which which is a nice touch. But also, I really like that ending for another reason because at the very beginning, Gerard's the one that tells Royce that he needs to have a backup weapon, and up until that point, he's never carried one. Yes. <laughs> oh, I've forgotten that as well. So, well, you see, like like I said, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. Like it's the same as. I wondered if Gerard had not a suspicion about Royce being the bad guy, but he definitely has a suspicion right from the word go that Royce knows more than he's letting on. Oh, yeah. Which he does, obviously. And one of the, the scenes that I really enjoy is that the way in which Snipes gets out of his cuffs in the plane sequence, which we haven't really talked about, um, but he uses, like, one bit of a, a pair of glasses. Like, he uses the the... I don't even know what it's called. Just the end bit that sits on your ears. And he handcuffs Robert Downey Jr. And basically tells him to get out the cuffs himself. And he breaks Cosmo's sunglasses and does the exact same thing. And what I like with that scene is, aside from the fact it demonstrates how Snipes could have done it, but it also subtly tells you that they're on the same level. And both times Royce and uh, Snipes fight, he wins every time. Which is hilarious, because you'd never think that Robert Downey Jr. would beat Wesley Snipes in a fight. But I love the fact that the character is that dangerous. Like, he's pretending to be, you know, this nice guy, and he's got some skills, but he's not the best or anything. He's just a floppy-haired guy, and he's got suspenders. Yeah. <laughs> Exa- exactly. But whenever whenever he manages to ditch the team and go off alone, he suddenly becomes very dangerous. I mean, there's a there's a lovely moment where... He breaks when when he first breaks into the old guy's room, and they show you Gerard do the same thing in a couple other rooms. Gerard is always like, 
relax, sir, relax, ma'am, I'm a US Marshal, is there anyone else in here? But when Royce does it, he doesn't give a shit. He he literally just kicks the door in, looks at him, ignores him, guy starts panicking, and then he starts clearing the room. And it's only when he's decided that the room is clear that he's like, oh man, relax. And then obviously he realizes that he's actually in the room. But they show you so many times that he just doesn't care. He's not got that same uh, respect for people that Gerard does. You know, he doesn't have that same restrictions and limits. He just does what he wants. And he's a man with a gun and he will take whatever chances he can to win, you know? Yeah, totally. And on a completely superficial note, I have to say, I love Samuel Gerard's room clearing methods because he's so... Tony Jones is so jumpy in The Fugitive and the US Marshals, the way that he comes around, like, walls and stuff with his, like, his hand around the corner and just swings his momentum around. Lots of good running and gun pointing in US Marshals and The Fugitive. That is... That is where it's it's a top tier running and gunning movie. I don't mean that in the sense there's like a lot of gunfights in both because obviously there are some gunfights, but I just I like the physicality going on here, um, especially when yeah. it's a uh, Gerard kind of like you said the, the subtlety of making sure that Royce is is made to the way that the film depicts Royce knowing more than he actually has his skills and etc. Uh, another great bit where they show that is when they are chasing Sheridan into, um, I believe it's an old person's home, an old folks' home. Yeah, um, I think that's what it is. And you know he's sprinting, and like he just he's frustratingly caught up by Gerard, but Gerard's still like, one second, I guess a breath. <laughs> you know, like it's still. I yeah. love that. Oh yeah, I I actually made a, a a mental note that that entire sequence from start to finish is probably one of the best examples of how i like the the sort of quote-unquote realistic chase sequences to be done because there's a temptation in a lot of hollywood movies where they would do that but they would make cuts and they would use stuntmen but you could tell that that was robert downey and tommy lee running and the you know robert downey's wearing a blue shirt it's stained from his sweat tommy lee jones is out of breath Wesley Snipes, as fit as he is, he's out of breath as well because he's just, you know, sprinted, run up those stairs and is now hiding from two people that, as far as he's concerned, are trying to kill him. And the fact that they don't all look like peak physical men, they're drenched in sweat, their clothes are stained, they're all, like, hyper-anxious, and like you say, they're all jittery as they're trying to find each other. And I really like that aspect of the film. And the fact that that whole sequence is topped off by a fantastic stunt where, you know... uh, I don't know who the double for Snipes was, but when he jumps off of that building, does a cable swing onto the roof of a train station, and then does a run and jump onto a moving train, and just sort of waves goodbye to Gerard. I mean, I I love the film, personally. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that entire sequence is fantastic. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to add about this film, because... I really, really do like it. It's like it's one of those that I used to watch with my dad quite regularly. I feel like it's always on TV more than The Fugitive, so it came up quite often. Um, so it's always going to have a great deal of affection for me in that in that regard. And I can watch it, and I will watch it, and I'll have a great time with it all the time. But it's just um, it's nice to get this level of this extra level of insight here because there's a more granular, there's a greater sense of granularity that you have to 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 US Marshals than I do. That's probably because it's a week out for me since I watched it. Um, <laughs> that's the excuse I'm going to use anyway. Um, but I think like my, my end my end thoughts really are just, good movie, go watch it. 
Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, like you said, there's a lot more action in this one. There's a lot of gunfights. There's a fantastic one in the graveyard. Um, and combined with everything else we've just said, you know, if you if you still think of this as the lesser of the two films, it's absolutely fine. I think it just comes down to personal preference. But if you haven't watched it in a while, maybe give it a watch and see if it's better than you remember. Um, and the only other thing that I wanted to ask you about rather than me say is, because we didn't really talk about it, is... What did you think of the actual big plane sequence? Because that is arguably one of the highlights of the film. Just seeing that plane, you know, blow apart and all these people fly out and then it slowly tries to land and crashes. I mean, that's a great sequence in my opinion. Oh yeah, totally. It's fantastic. And again, like it's it's one of those that I struggled in the moment to appreciate what it is accomplishing because it does feel to me like so derivative of the first one it's like we've got to have our big you know um the first one a bus crash or train crash sorry well bus crash onto yeah. a train and then we're, now we're gonna have the plane crash you know and it's, it's the u.s marshals transport service as well so the, in my brain i'm being a narc i'm like oh i'm just doing the same thing again on an objective basis it is very cool like what they and i love how um they do the escape scene as well, where obviously, you know, the the, the, the airplane is flooding and, and Gerard's, you know, wading into water to rescue these people, you know, because he's, he's, he's great at his job. That's what I love. It's a good, he's good at his job. I like that. I like movies about men who are good at their jobs. It's, it's always good. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that comment about Gerard being good at his job and taking charge is actually has a great juxtaposition in the following scenes where... The sheriff is trying desperately to tell his men <laughs> he's trying to, how to he's, he's seen how to a clip establish of the fugitive, and he's trying to copy Gerard as, as best as possible. But yeah. he can't remember any of the lines. But what? But what I like about it is Gerard doesn't get. Well, he does get frustrated with him, but he keeps it to himself. But he doesn't immediately try to just muscle in and out alpha him. He just sits yes. back. Gives him a little bit of help when he thinks he needs it. And then eventually the sheriff's like, yeah, what do you think we should do? And then he's like, okay, cool. You you asked for my opinion and expert advice. Allow me to now give it. And he tells them what to do. And they do. And I feel like in so many other films that he, he would have just immediately started butting heads with that sheriff. And there would have been a whole subplot about how they have to be rivals and they don't like each other. And in this, it's just like, no, man, we're professionals. I'll step in when you need me, but right now you're you're not getting anywhere, and you know it. So you're going to ask me eventually, you know. <laughs> it's just for he's uh, he's there trying to like playing at the map and gesturing his finger. We're going to establish a, and then Gerard comes in with perimeter, perimeter. That's it. We're going to establish a perimeter. <laughs> I do. Oh no, that. no, no. He does. He doesn't even say perimeter. He says, "Yeah, that that there circle thing." Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which just, I mean, it's again, it's like. When you were talking about the clothes and uh, Gerard walks into the uh, the diner and because he's not wearing any shoes and it's a wooden, you know, it's made of wood, he get, he catches his foot on something and, you know, he's limping and jumping and hopping around for the rest of that scene. And it's just, it's, it's so great at remembering all the little details. Like, yeah, walking on a wooden floor probably isn't the greatest idea if you're walking bare feet. Yeah, totally. Man, I kind of want that barbecue t-shirt he has on. I want an obscure U.S. Marshals piece of paraphernalia. <laughs> and and also, just before we do finish, you know, you said that um, a lot of people have made the complaint that Tommy Lee Jones always plays himself. And obviously, we moved on before I could really say anything. But I don't agree either. I I, I, 
I would say that there are definitely films where he's playing the same Tommy Lee Jones persona, but I, I, you know, are you trying to tell me that William Stranix from Under Siege is the same as Gerard? <laughs> it really does get under my, like, it really gets on my nerves when people are like that, because he does, he's got such an expressive face, and I think people, you know, they, they gather from that a man who is like a slightly sullen older man who is grumpy. But his performances go so far beyond grumpy. And I feel like he is one of our... He's one of the greatest talents to have come out of like the last 50 years or so of acting. I genuinely do think he... Like obviously, with that Oscar in hand, I still think he is quite underrated as a performer. Um, I really do love him. I think he's underrated because of the type of films that he stars in. This is, this is a little bit of an action addict's rant that I have, but there are certain type of films that well, you, we even have kind of said it here, there's fantastic performances under the surface of this film, but because this film didn't get the same acclaim that The Fugitive did, no one wants to give it its flowers. And I feel like that is true of a lot of films that Tommy Lee Jones starred in. He was fantastic in them, and he's never really... Well, there are a few films, I think, towards his later years where he he does sort of just run by numbers, but most of majority of his films he always gives 110 percent but the films in question maybe are not going to win awards because they're not that type of movie and i think that is the temptation there to basically go ah well he's just in a he's in like a dad movie or he's in an action movie or he's in a a crime thriller whatever it might be and people just write it off and go ah well we know what to expect it'll be it'll be da 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 yeah totally. they don't actually look at the performances he's just such a hugely versatile actor i think he does comedy excellently i think he does evil great obviously there's like kind of campy villainous stuff like you mentioned you know stranix at under siege there's two face and down forever but again like you go for something like roland thunder where he's playing this quietly menacing you know time bomb that is just looking for an excuse to explode um he does all of it so well and i think gerard is like such a fast like fantastic role for him because it embodies so many different elements that he's shown so well over the years like you know you have that relentless element you know the whole idea of like the hunter who won't give up to quote bart simpson he's like some kind of non-giving up guy um <laughs> you know and he's got the comedy he's got like the the emotional like kind of like the the vulnerability going on. i just think he's fantastic and i think you know u.s marshall's a film that, you know, I definitely think people should give it another shot. Because I, I it's one that I've always enjoyed, but having watched it last week, I was like, man, this is the definition of just a fantastic late evening, I'm having a great time watching this movie. If that is a category, <laughs> if not, I've invented it. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah. Hey, that sounds like a pretty good category to me. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and, I, and, I, and I just have to say before before you do wrap us up that uh, if you want to do a Tommy Lee Jones comedy, I will happily come back and talk about Space Cowboys any oh, day. Oh, hell yeah. Space Cowboys. Oh my God. Great time. I've not watched that one in ages, man. No, same, to be honest. I've had it, I bought it on Blu-ray ages ago, and I'm pretty certain it's still sealed. So you give me an excuse to unwrap that, I'll be very happy. That's also <laughs> like a peak dad movie, because that's what Clint Eastwood, uh, God, who else? Oh, yeah. Who else is in that? Man, that's, that's every single dad boy. Dad boy? Dad boy? Dad boy. This is the dad boys podcast. Oh, Donald Sutherland as well. Okay, yeah. No, that's um, that's going to be on the list at some point. Um, 
but yeah, Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Um, and I can't thank you enough for choosing U.S. Marshals because you brought such a really valuable and fun and unique insight to the film that you know, and raised things that are completely I'd overlooked. Um, and it's made me like it even more. So I think that's a great gift to have imparted to me, and hopefully on the listeners as well who may or may not be more compelled to go check out U.S. Marshals as a result. Hey man, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite. It's uh, it's nice to both be invited to other people's shows. It's even nicer when those shows are are, are fellow British created because it means you're in my time zone, <laughs> which is always nice. That is a bonus. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I I pretty much decided that I wouldn't be able to do U.S. Marshals, even though, like you said, there is more action in it. I don't think I would necessarily class it as an action film, but. Uh, the opportunity to come on and talk about it as a dad movie was like yeah man i'm there for that so if you ever want me to come back for anything else just let me know oh absolutely i will be picking up that phone and giving you well the metaphorical phone i'll probably just message you on twitter (laughs) (laughs) yeah that works yeah um scott once again where can everyone find you and the lovely work you do at the action addicts podcast uh, well, my personal Twitter is a pain in the ass for people to remember, but it's at PsychoGoldGaming without a G. So it's probably easier to find the Action Addicts Twitter account, which is at AddictsAction, because someone had already taken the other name. I'm also on Instagram, very helpfully, just under Action Addicts Podcast. And if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go to www.actionaddictsnetwork.com and find us on a website that is woefully in need of more written content, but... You can also use that as a way to just find the podcast, find the socials. So it is out there. Um, I'm making it very easy to find me if you want to. Perfect, perfect. Please do check out Action Addicts Podcast. It is a wonderful time. Um, that entire corner of Twitter and like action movie fandom is great, but I love your podcast, man. It's a great time. And also, you know, time zone solidarity in that. It's important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. I... I, I, you can come back anytime. I really enjoyed having you on. So if people haven't listened to the episode, please go check it out. Uh, if you like this show, you're going to like Ewan's episode. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, before we go, I want to give a quick shout out to our lovely, lovely patrons. Thank you, Christopher Darby, George Jackson, Thomas Mulgrew, Shaka, and Josh. But remember, if you want to go and support the We Love Dad Movies podcast, you can do so. We are on Patreon. We've got lots of fun stuff coming up there. You get access to early episodes, polls, and written content uh you can find the podcast of course on twitter at we love dad movies um you can follow me on twitter uh, at you and ruins things although i'm on there way less than i used to be i'm also on letterboxd uh you and patterson and yeah i think that about covers it scott it's an exciting time on the podcast because i have no clue what we're going to record next <laughs> yay it's just an excitement some people would think of that and think ah stress I look at it as opportunity and stress. It's still a little bit of stress. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wish you the best of luck in picking your next feature film. Yeah, absolutely. All right. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone.